Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. Because of the substantial volume of unfulfilled prophecy and, and, and the mystery that it contains, Revelation has to be the most challenging book in the New Testament, if not the entire Holy Bible. Therefore, I'm going to endeavor to review the previous lesson to start the next and at other times sum up what we've heard and learned in order to kind of keep us on the most level ground that we can find. Um, we're going to take some time to do that to begin today's discussion. Now chapter 4 that we started last week ushered us into a new vision given by God to John the Apostle, a Jew in exile on the Mediterranean island of Patmos. And on this Roman prison island, John had the vision not only of the letters of God's judgment upon seven believing congregations uh, in Asia, but he also received other visions that form all of what we read in the book of Revelation. These seven were not the only believers assemblies in Asia at that time, but they may have been the largest, perhaps the best known each of the seven were Jewish synagogues whereby the leadership and the members agreed that Yeshua of Nazareth, Nazareth was indeed the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, upon whom the Jewish people had waited for centuries. Many Gentiles had joined the Messianic movement by now, but not without struggle as to just how these Gentiles, considered unclean according to Jewish tradition, could possibly be part of it. How could they fit in with a mostly Jewish congregation without contaminating these devout Jews with their ritual impurity? The matter had been addressed <coughs> Guidelines were put forth more than 40 years earlier than the writing of Revelation. And that famous Jerusalem Council meeting, chaired by James, the biological half-brother of Jesus, attended by Paul the Apostle, the leader of those who evangelized Gentiles and Jews who lived outside the Holy Land. This was a settled issue. Should have been. The time of John's visions was probably around the early 90s AD, meaning it had been two decades since Rome had put down a Jewish rebellion by besieging Jerusalem, destroying the temple, most of the city, killing thousands of Jewish citizens in Judea and in the Galilee. John was the only remaining apostle of the original twelve 
and due to the horrendously traumatic destruction of the temple, the scattered persecutions against believers in Christ, and the continuing occupation of the Jewish national homeland by the Romans, John believed, as did Paul, that the end times was upon them. Yeshua was expected to return and rescue Israel and his people from its dismal situation at any moment. This explains the extreme urgency to spread the good news. Their disdain for their own lives. This was present among the apostles, the other Jewish evangelists of the mid-first century AD. It's a disdain that modern believers would do well to emulate as we too must assume that we are on the event horizon of the return of our Lord and Savior from His heavenly seat at the Father's right hand. Now just as Paul had been certain of it four decades earlier, John was also certain that the end could not be more than a few months or maybe years away because of the fulfilled prophecies concerning the ruination of the temple and then what comes thereafter. So it is for us that we can know for certain that the end cannot be too far ahead of us because of the fulfilled prophecies about the rebirth of Israel in but one day and the control of Jerusalem being wrested away from Gentiles and returned to the Jewish people. In chapters 1 through 3, God's vision to John was about judging, meaning evaluating, the spiritual temperature and temperament within the seven specifically named assemblies. In each case, the Lord either pronounced his commendation upon that assembly or his condemnation of it. Or as in most of the letters, it was a mixture of both. These are neither made-up stories. They are not general metaphors about churches. These were real believing congregations and the letters addressed to them were meant to communicate God's assessment of them. That said, there are lessons to be universally learned in all eras by those who call Yeshua Lord and Savior. Therefore, we are to consider what God has to say as pertaining to ourselves as individuals and also as a corporate body. That is the congregation that we belong to where it applies. Now perhaps one of the most difficult and bothersome outcomes from, from studying the seven letters to the seven congregations is what we find out about the one who is narrating these letters to John in his vision. It is that we never get his name. We never get his position in the Godhead. And while it's nearly universally insisted upon that this is Jesus Christ, the divine figure himself never says so. 
nor does John. In fact, beyond the immutable reality that the person narrating is the God of Israel, John seems to remain somewhat perplexed over who this person is. So rather than a name or a title, we get this series of statements that describe this individual only by a set of attributes and characteristics that change letter to letter. The problem is that while some of the attributes and characteristics indeed typify Christ, others more typify the Father. Thus it's my position that while it is tempting to solve this dilemma by simply declaring that the divine narrator must be Jesus because that way the doctrines of several popular Christian denominations aren't harmed the material to this point leaves his precise identity a mystery therefore we too shall at least for now leave his identity as a mystery as we engage the next recorded vision given to John well, this next vision begins with the opening words of Revelation chapter 4. And it's important to grasp that we have essentially two ways to think about how to understand the order of John's visions, the order of them. Either we are to assume that the order they are given to us within Revelation is the specific order in which John received them, or the order they were received is not the same as the order John wrote them down. And within the context of each of these two choices is the matter of whether the many events foretold within each vision unfold in precisely the order that it's spoken or is the order that it occurs not necessarily the point but rather, it is only that all the listed events within that vision are certain to happen in some order or another. Most Christian denominations have made their choices, written those choices down in stone, and declared them as part of their faith doctrines. Thus, depending on the denomination, the interpretation and the meaning of the many mysterious beings and events of revelation are generally predetermined. Now we're going to take a different approach. And we're going to do our best to set aside our doctrinal filters and adding only the hindsight of history and of, of ancient language and culture reckon that the words of Revelation mean what they say and say what they mean. And when things are unclear, you know what? Some things may just remain unclear. This necessarily implies we're not going to be able to provide answers to some of the intriguing mysteries that we wish we could. However, to me, at times, no answer is better than pure speculation or the employment of the human imagination because 
the, the first way allows us to be open to interpreting current events within the confines of Scripture, while the second way limits us to interpreting current events only within the boundaries of man-made doctrines and traditions. We don't want to do that. Chapters 4 and 5 now work together. Probably they shouldn't even have been divided into two chapters. They are part of the same vision. And they revolve around the same motif of the throne of God in heaven. And whereas the prophecies of Ezekiel tend to play a large role in chapters 1 through 3 and still have a contributing role in chapter 4, the prophecies of Daniel now become dominant in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The heavenly throne room is the setting and the glory of both God and Christ are the emphasis. What gets overlooked nearly universally among Christian commentators is this tight connection between God, Yeshua, and the throne room that is the heavenly temple that's presented by John and its earthly counterpart represented in the tribes of Israel, the temple, and the priesthood. Very closely associated. In fact, without recognizing that tight connection, the interpretation of these passages has no choice but to resort to allegory. We spoke specifically about that last time. As John describes the appearance of God as what? He says it's like Jasper and Carnelian, sometimes called Sardius, with a rainbow of emerald surrounding, surrounding the throne. And it is true, by the way, you're looking in your complete Jewish Bibles, that it says diamonds and rubies, but that is a poor translation. It's neither warranted or does it agree with any other solid translation. Looking to the Torah, we find that Jasper is the symbol for the twelfth tribe of Israel, Benjamin. Carnelian, or Sardius, is the symbol for the first tribe of Israel, Reuben. And Emerald is the symbol for the fourth tribe of Israel, Judah, from which came the Messiah. These stones were arranged and placed in birth order on the breastplate of the high priest so that when he went before the Lord so did the twelve tribes of Israel symbolically. Now surrounding God's throne were 24 elders sitting on their own thrones. By default these can only be believers. But they must also represent the 24 courses of priests and Levites who served the Lord on earth at the temple in two-week increments. Ezekiel chapter 44 tells us explicitly that Levites and priests from the line of Sadok will serve the Lord in the millennial temple, meaning, of course, they must be believers in Christ. 
And therefore, it forms a tight fit that in heaven, these would be saved priests and Levites. In the book of Acts, Acts 6-7, we read, So the word of God continued to spread, and the number of Talmudim, the disciples, and Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large crowd of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Therefore, it was not rare, but rather many priests and Levites became believers not long after Christ's death. This is who the 24 elders were surrounding God's throne in heaven as it connects directly with reference to the tribes of Israel concerning the appearance of God as like precious stones, which then directly relates to the tribal symbols. Finally, we encountered these strange four living creatures that guarded God's throne. Beings with faces like a man, an ox, an eagle, and a lion. This too forms a tight connection with the tribes of Israel. We learned in Exodus that the twelve tribes camped around the wilderness tabernacle in four assigned groups of three tribes each, with each grouping having a designated leader tribe. And in addition to the precious stones as tribal symbols, each Israelite tribe also flew a banner that had sewn onto it a living, breathing creature as its symbol. And the four leader tribes symbols exactly match those of the faces of the four living creatures in heaven. Those of an ox, a man, an eagle, and a lion. Let's finish up now with chapter 4 and get into chapter 5. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses 8 to 11. 8 to 11. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is going to be on page 1537. Starting at verse 8. Each of the four living beings had six wings and was covered with eyes inside and out. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who was, who is, and who is coming. And whenever the living beings give glory, honor, and thanks to the one uh, sitting on the throne, to the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever and worship him. They throw their crowns in front of the throne and say, You are worthy, Adonai Eloheinu, to have glory, honor, and power because you created all things. Yes, because of your will, they were created and came into being. Verse 8 tells us 
that since the glory of God is the emphasis in heaven, then it follows that praising him and worshiping him is the order of the day for those most closely surrounding his throne. God is to be glorified because of his sovereignty and his holiness that is unmatched. And it represents the very core and substance of his existence, if we can even call it as such. Now we read from Genesis throughout the Old Testament and then rarely throughout the New that the function of God's creation is to proclaim His glory. The trees, the hills, the stones, the stars, sun and moon, every living creature that crawls, swims, flies, walks, all were created by God to glorify Him. As created sentient creatures, that is especially the fundamental purpose of humanity. But it is an even higher calling than the other creatures who operate mainly on instinct. God has given humans a choice of free will that no other created thing, or perhaps maybe than angels, have. The choice to love and glorify Him or not. And so naturally, when we get to heaven, that will also be the purpose of the spirits and souls of everything and everyone that is present with God. Thus for a human being to not glorify God, the God of the Bible, that is rebellion of the worst sort. And so that human is marked for eternal destruction since he or she refuses to serve his or her fundamental purpose for existing. The words used by the four living beings to praise God are holy, holy, holy as Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who was, who is, and is, who is coming. This is taken directly from Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, which is Isaiah's vision of God's throne that matches so closely with John's. And starting with Isaiah 6, 1, in the year of King Uziah's death, I saw Adonai sitting on a high lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Sfarim, meaning uh, uh, the beings that are around his, his throne. Each of them with six wings, two covering his face, two covering his feet, two, co uh, two for flying. They were crying out to each other. More holy than the holiest holiness is Adonai Sevaot. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now since this reference used by John is to this passage that I just read to you, 
from Isaiah, then it behooves us to understand it in the context that Isaiah gave it. When in the complete Jewish Bible version, the seraphim cry out, more holy than the holiest holiness, that can also be legitimately and probably better translated as holy, holy, holy. In other words, holy repeated three times. The object of that supreme holiness is said to be Adonai Sevaot, the Lord of Heaven's hosts or Heaven's army. However, that is not quite complete either because the original language does not use the word Adonai. It uses Yudhevave, Yehoveh. Therefore, the proper translation is Yehoveh of heaven's hosts. And of course, Yehoveh, as always in the Bible, is the formal name of the Father. Although admittedly, it might be possible sometimes to speak of Yehoveh as the sum of the Godhead. Therefore, that is exactly how we are to take this in Revelation 4, verse 8. The praise is being lavished upon God the Father, perhaps Jehovah the Godhead, who sits on the central throne in heaven. Now notice also how the characterization of God is as he who was, who is, and what is coming. This matches with the same characterization as we read back in Revelation 1.8 and it makes us scratch our heads about this is to come or is coming part. Since in nominal Christianity the person of God always his, who is to come is Christ. Yet we put that to rest some time ago when we looked at Zechariah chapter 14 that specifically says that Yehovah is also coming and in fact when Yehovah steps foot on the Mount of Olives it splits in half under the weight of his immense holiness thus while with 100% certainty Yeshua, our Messiah, is coming back in some way. The Father or the entire Godhead is also coming to earth at the end times. Verse 10 then goes on to explain that whenever the four living beings sing out their praise to God, it sets off the 24 elders who also give praise, but with a slightly different pronouncement. Why do the elders pray as they do? Because they express that what makes God so worthy of praise is that the entire creation came about solely by God's will. And because God's omniscience is just demonstrated by His creation. And a wonderful application for modern believers is that we can be confident that everything that will ever happen to us personally, everything 
that has ever happened in both recorded and unrecorded history plays a role in God's purposes. Whether it is from our abundance or our poverty, from our joy or from our suffering, let us always praise God because nothing He permits ever goes to waste. Nor is it out of His control. All is happening according to His plan. And His plan focuses on the redemption and restoration of His creation. Let's move on to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1537. 1537. Next, I saw on the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven, on earth, under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look inside of it. And I, I cried and I cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. But one of the elders said to me, Don't cry. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has won the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw standing there with the throne and the four living beings in the circle of the elders a lamb that appeared to have been slaughtered. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down in front of the lamb. Each one held a harp and gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals, because you were slaughtered. At the cost of blood, you ransomed for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them into a kingdom for God to rule. Kohanim, priests, to serve him, and they will rule over the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the sound of a vast number of angels, thousands and thousands, millions and millions. They were all around the throne, the living beings and the elders, and they shouted out, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, yes, everything in them saying to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb belongs praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Oh, to have been present for that. Now, <clears throat> while chapter 5 is connected to chapter 4, and the two chapters really shouldn't even be divided, chapter 5 
does provide a kind of transition from the ideal perfection exhibited in heaven by the four living beings and the 24 elders and the glorious design of the throne and the throne room and the order and the sinless condition of all involved to the earthly realm with all of the chaos, immorality, suffering and pain, rebelliousness in humanity, which has been the world order since Adam and Eve fell from grace. But what we are also witness to from here forward is the inauguration of God's sovereignty in its fullest and frankly at its most awful over his creation in the end times. This fallen world is about to suffer what has been foretold and threatened by the prophets for millennia. God's judgment and then wrath that brings history to a close and also brings to a, into reality manifest redemption to a degree that mankind has never known. So here in chapter 5 begins that unavoidable process keyword is process that believers must at once dread and welcome a process with the happiest outcome but also one that may well cost us and those we love our physical lives. Prepared for that? I said in an earlier lesson that when we, we, we back away, we take this far view of the Bible, what we find is that in the Old Testament, God brought deliverance for those who were His own from oppression and death and suffering by means of defeating enemies and giving Israel supernatural strength under the most miraculous conditions. However, in the New Testament, upon the advent of Christ, we find the deliverance for His people, His believers, from oppression and from suffering is often by means of our physical death. The believer's deliverance then is not from a life of misery and troubles on earth into a life of abundance and peace on earth. Rather, it is that through our suffering and maybe our death, which is bound to our faith in God and and, and identifies with the sufferings of Christ, That is how we will have a true and perfect life in paradise where peace and abundance abound for eternity. One of my deep concerns among the church as we know it today is not only the false teaching of the prosperity doctrine but also the false teaching that in the end times those who trust Christ can expect to avoid discomfort and tribulation and death 
as is prophesied to be coming for all of Earth's inhabitants. I'm not only speaking of when the rapture may occur, but of all the destructive events that lead up to it. It fascinates me how some believing people seem to actually be looking forward to the devastating events of the end times as they joyfully sing, Come Jesus, come! Without seeming to realize that those two events arrive together. ready for that? We are regularly told in the New Testament to be faithful even unto death. This is not referring to dying peacefully in our sleep. It is by no means that the New Testament glorifies death. Rather, it is that because of Yeshua's death and resurrection that prefigures our own, we need not fear it. Death is not the end for the believer. It is but a transition to the heaven that we saw described for us in Revelation chapter 4. Now, I'm quite aware that some of this is not the message that most Christians want to hear. Christians of the West especially have been conditioned to believe that salvation is a universal get-out-of-jail-free card. Trust in Christ and all our troubles are over. Have enough faith in that BMW in the house with the swimming pool. That's as good as yours. Believe in Jesus, go to church, and before the big trouble that is somewhere ahead of us begins, you're going to be painlessly whisked away, and you're going to avoid it all. That is a dangerous mindset. Because first of all, it is not biblical. And it is not true. But second, this is why so many seem to come to Christ only to fall away later. They are sold a bill of goods. They believe these false doctrines of men that are promised in God's name. And then when trouble inevitably comes, or perhaps when they aren't overwhelmed with the promised abundance of material pleasures, they fall away. Because they think God has failed them. Do not let this happen to you. Do not let this happen to those you know. Believe the word of God. Understand that our hope is in Christ. And that the joy we can have in the midst of troubles here in this present life is because of our hope in Christ. And for the glorious future that comes after he returns and sets up God's kingdom, our hope is in Christ. Well, verse 1 of chapter 5 continues what we are witnessing at the end of chapter 4. There is no break or pause in the action. The one seated on the throne is the Father, and what is about to take place is but the fulfillment of of the prophecy given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 
So it's incumbent upon us to take the time to read the prophecy to see what John's alluding to. That way we can get the full picture. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is going to be on page 1109. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read the whole chapter. Daniel chapter 7, page 1109, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying on his bed, and he wrote the dream down. And this is his account. I had a vision at night, and I saw there before me the four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea, and the four huge animals came up out of the sea, each different from the others. The first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings, and as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted off the earth and made to stand on two feet, like a man. And a human heart was given to it. Then there was another animal, a second one like a bear, and it raised, up, uh, raised itself up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and gorge yourself with flesh. And after this I looked, there was another one, like a leopard, with four bird's wings on its sides. The animal also had four heads and it was given power to rule. And after this, I looked in the, in the night visions, and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, with great iron teeth. And it devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left. And it was different from all the animals that had gone before it. And it had ten horns. Now while I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them. A little one. Before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. In this horn were eyes like human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly. And as I watched... Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands, thousands ministered, ministered to him. Millions and millions stood before him. Then the court was convened and books were opened. And I kept watching. And then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed and its body was destroyed and it was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. I kept watching the night visions when I saw someone uh, saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. And he approached the Ancient One who was led into his presence. To him was given rulership, glory, a kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now as for me, Daniel, my spirit deep within me was troubled and the visions in my head frightened me. And as I approached one of those standing by and asked him what all this really meant, he said that he would make me understand how to interpret these things. 
these four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what the fourth beast meant. The one that was different from all the others, so very terrifying, with iron teeth, bronze nails, which devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left, and what the ten horns on its head meant, and the other horn which sprang up, and before which three fell, the horn that had the eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly, and it seemed greater than the others. And I watched, and that horn made war with the holy ones, and was winning the ancient one came. Judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. And the time came for the holy ones to take over the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. Now as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and yet another will arise after them. Now he'll be different from the earlier ones. He will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High. He will try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he will be stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed and completely destroyed. Then the kingdom and the rulership and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account. Now as for me, Daniel, my thoughts frightened me so much I turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. In Daniel 7, 13-15, he explains that he sees in his vision who? One like a son of man approaching the ancient one and that the son of man was given rulership and a kingdom by the ancient one and that his rulership would never pass away. Now this along with the rest of the vision gave Daniel Daniel a sizable headache. I mean it just troubled him so deeply. Not just because it was so frightening but because he couldn't make sense of it. Well, here in Revelation chapter 5, John is attaching the identity of the person who is the one like the Son of Man in Daniel to the Lamb who appears to have been slaughtered. John says, that Lamb, that's not the one that's the one like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. They're one and the same. So while Daniel had no concept of who this one like a son of man is, John identifies him as the Messiah. Mystery solved. 
I'm going to repeat so that we can get the players in John's vision properly labeled. Okay, The ancient one in Daniel chapter 7 is the one sitting on the throne in Revelation 5. The one like a son of man in Daniel 7 is the lamb that appears to have been slaughtered in Revelation chapter 5. We know from the Old Testament that the ancient one is God the Father. And we know from several descriptions of Messiah and earlier passages of the New Testament and from Old Testament prophecies that the Lamb is Yeshua, the Son of God. So God the Father is sitting on His heavenly throne with a scroll in His right hand and the scroll was written upon on both sides of the paper. Further, the document was sealed with seven seals, not just one, seven seals. Now, although the complete Jewish Bible and other Bible versions refer to the document as a scroll, it may have been a book. The Greek word being translated is biblion. All right? And it refers to just writing material. Thus, it could be in almost any form. It actually seems more logical that it's a book. Because by this time, books were in more use than scrolls. Be that as it may, part of the reason that Bible scholars even debate what seems to be a small point, whether it's a book or a scroll, is because of those seven seals. As we're going to read later, after each seal is broken, some of what is written in that document is revealed. But how, if a scroll has seven seals, how is it that someone can view any of its contents until all seven of them are broken? After all, only one seal is sufficient enough to keep the contents of this scroll completely sealed up. Therefore, some think it's a book with a certain amount of pages sealed by one seal, then another certain amount of pages sealed by another seal, and so on, such that the opening of each seal can reveal the contents of additional pages. In Daniel 12, 4, Daniel is given this instruction by God. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. So when we hear, seal up the book until the time of the end, we realize that what John sees happening is this sealed up book that's mentioned in Daniel. It's about to be opened. Mysteries that were known to Daniel, mysteries he was not allowed to share, are about to be revealed. Saying that Daniel should seal up this book is referring to placing a seal on the book so that no one can gain knowledge of its contents. And we see from Revelation 5 that in fact seven seals were placed on this book. Now we should also note that even though as we study Revelation that it feels as though we're the first to get a peek into it and learn what awaits humankind at the end. In fact, 
God revealed it all in the late first century to John. So this same information that we're studying right now has been available to believers for 1900 years. But even more, since Daniel was told that this book was not to be unsealed until the time of the end, and in John's day the book was unsealed, well then you can imagine why John and the first readers of the book of Revelation had to assume that they were indeed living at the time of the end, wouldn't you? As we now know, however, John's day was not the end. Therefore, what God must have intended by telling Daniel to seal up the book until the time of the end more meant when the events foretold within the book actually begin to happen rather than when the contents of what was in the book was merely revealed. So it's a two-step process. First, the unveiling of the contents. Then later, the actual carrying out of what the contents reveal. Now because seven is a sacred an ideal number and it's regularly associated with the work of the divine then it's appropriate that this book or scroll would have seven seals on it because the book is kept by God and where does it exist? In heaven. But it also applies to the fact that the book reveals seven judgments. One for each seal that's broken. So next an angel appears and shouts out, Who is worthy to open the, the scroll and break its seals? Notice that it is not a matter of who's able. It's who's worthy. There's only one person who's worthy. Yeshua. Because, you see, he's worthy because of his willingness to go to the cross. And then his subsequent, subsequent resurrection. All fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. That's what merits him his worthiness. Now there's an interesting backdrop that adds to the reason that only Yeshua was worthy to open the scroll. Interestingly, it occurs in Genesis 1. There we read in verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves, and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals, and over all the earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. So Adam was given rule over the earth. But then he threw away his opportunity to act upon it when he was deceived by Satan and he rebelled against God. 
Yeshua rescued that divine promise for mankind to have dominion over the earth. The promise had been given to a man. So a man had to be the one to open the seals of the book and appropriate what God had promised to a man. Adam, which means man. However, because we've all descended from Adam, we have all inherited his sin, which deprives us of the right to rule over the dominion that God intended for us. How to solve this dilemma? Well, God sent his son to be born in sinless human form to suffer the punishment and provide atonement for the sins of mankind. Christ did not back down from this duty. And in doing so became the only one worthy to redeem God's people and to execute judgment and redemption upon planet earth. Thus Messiah Yeshua will rule over the earth and over God's kingdom forever and he is most worthy to do so. We'll continue chapter 5 next time.